Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasad Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, this is Tracy Roberts-Camps, Professor of Latin American Literature and Film at University of the Pacific, and I'm here with Jennifer Helgren, um, Professor of History at University of the Pacific, and we're here to talk about her book, American Girls and Global Responsibility, A New Relation to the World During the Early Cold War. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Tracy. Um, So my first question is, how does this book fit into your overall research, and what led you to this topic in particular? Well, I've been interested in girl studies and the history of girlhood in particular for a while. Um, And for this book, I was interested in two things in particular, girls' roles as citizens and really how ordinary Americans uh, worked for peace after World War II and how those efforts gained traction and often failed. I actually called my book The Peace Project for a really long time because I was interested in seeing how girls Um, were understood as um, particularly useful as indirect ambassadors to other countries. Um, Girls seem to have a um, history connected to the connection between women and peace and women and nurturing that enabled girls' organizations to carve out and imagine a space for girls where they could be kind of peacemakers. The other thing that interested me was uh, research on girlhood in the post-World War II period has tended to focus on girls' vulnerabilities, girls as juvenile delinquents, girls as incorrigible, um, girls who've gotten in trouble. And the literature on youth organizations was often very narrow, though it has completely changed over the last decade or so. Um, And we could talk a little bit more about that later. But youth organization literature tended to be you know, very institutional narratives, or they focused on the way that youth organizations were very conservative and narrow, increased, created youth that were uh, you know, conformist. And so I was really intrigued when I was writing my dissertation on the Campfire Girls at the way that um, adults were genuinely interested in envisioning girls as leaders and seeing girls as agents of change um, during this period. Um, And so that's how I started to get into uh, this history of writing about girls as um, indirect international ambassadors um, and looking at their roles as potential peacemakers in the post-World War. To period. I should also add that this um, period, the early Cold War, uh, is of special interest to me. We often think of the Cold War simply in terms of the, um, the, the conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States, um, but this period is also a period of reconciliation between Japan and the U.S. and Germany and the U.S. 
And these were two of the, the countries that girls were most likely to write pen pal letters to. And I, I became increasingly curious as I combed through the campfire national headquarters archives uh, and read some of the girls' um, pen pal letters. And there aren't a lot, but I'll share just, just one of these here that just really piqued my interest. This is from a Japanese teenager. Um, and she's writing a pen pal letter to introduce herself to an American campfire girl. And uh, she says in her letter, and um, again, this is, this is the late 1940s. Uh, these are adolescents. They would have known the history of World War II. They would have known about the atomic bomb. And yet this is what she writes. She says, perhaps you have heard of Japan, where Tokyo is. Japan is famous for its cherry blossoms. So there's this complete uh, disappearance of the war and the anger and the hatred and all of the racial stereotypes that girls on both sides would have built up over the period of the, the war. And there's this very fresh introduction that focuses on the, the cherry blossoms. So I, I wondered about you know, how many more of these stories were there? What roles did these mainstream girls organizations uh, play in giving girls uh, spaces to write these kinds of letters um, and you know what happens ultimately with those relationships. That's fascinating. Um, and maybe later we can also talk a little bit more about these particular girls organizations, youth organizations. I know we've talk, um, talked about that in the past. Um, so tell me uh, about the main argument of the book and how it contributes um, to the research in your field in general. Yes, thank you. I think on the most basic level, I wanted to argue that girls mattered. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense in girls' studies literature uh, or, or girls' studies scholarship that adults have in the past not seriously thought about girls as historical actors. And as I mentioned before, I was really surprised to find how um, seriously many of the youth organizations actually did take girls. And girls themselves fought back against a notion that they were somehow frivolous and not important. And uh, I actually opened the book with a quote from Seventeen magazine this is from a girl who wrote to the editors. She was complaining. She didn't think that the magazine was taking um, girls particularly seriously. And so she says, she, she wrote, you say your stories depict typical teenagers. If so, heaven help us. You make us sound like heathenish, heathenish creatures with no thought beyond boys and clothes. Actually, we're interested in the world crisis international relations, labor situations, racial and religious tolerance, and political affairs. And many of our hen parties, which is I guess what they used to call girls' parties, are spent in discussing these very things. Um, and so it's an interesting letter because of course, Seventeen chose to print it as an indication that they too were interested in these issues and helping girls to think about and become um, civic-minded citizens. Uh, but she's pushing back against this notion that girls are, are frivolous. And so to some extent, I simply wanted to show that girls were taken seriously um, by themselves and by the adults 
who were creating educational um, and um, you know educational institutions for them, um, educational magazines, which Seventeen, surprisingly, in the 1940s, in its early years, really was a kind of service magazine for girls, along with the advertising and the fashion. Um, the other part of the argument was to understand the way that um, gender and age um, was constructed in this period of growing internationalism. And um, ordinary Americans were engaged in the international level in many new ways during the 1940s and the 1950s. The US government estimated that 2 million Americans, half military, were living and traveling abroad during the 1950s. Um, another measure of this is Girl Scouts troops on foreign soil. Uh, these are American girls who are living abroad, often with military families or with um, businesses that are abroad. Um, these groups grew tenfold from 1950 to 1958. So across the nation, Americans were more involved in international um, travel, um, international affairs, and so I was increasingly interested in how this widespread internationalism affected ordinary Americans. Um, and so we, we see in a lot of the literature right now that's coming out on children and youth, such as Misha Honig's book on the Boy Scouts um, and Sarah Fieldston's work, that there was in the 1940s and 1950s an increasing awareness of the roles that children could play as indirect international ambassadors. And so the book argues that um, girls' organizations, Campfire Girls, the Girl Scouts, the YWCA, but also other um, girls' culture venues like Seventeen Magazine um, provided a forum and a space for girls to become world citizens. And I also argue that it takes a different shape for girls and for boys. Um, for boys, there's always an underlying current that of, 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 of nationalism. There's always an underlying current, for example, especially in the Boy Scouts of America, that ultimately, son, you may have to serve in the military. You may have to go to war um, in the Cold War and, and fight for this nation. And girls are exempt from that, and girls are also imagined through their relationships. So even though boys also are writing pen pals, the, the um, literature from the Girl Scouts and the Campfire Girls and the YWCA emphasizes girls' relationships and their ability to, um, through their friendships and through their nurture and through their care, um, bring about a different kind of world. And yes, it's aspirational and yes, it's uh, far-fetched in a lot of ways, um, but there is this space uh, to produce a discourse about peace within girls' organizations. So one of the things you see, for example, is in the uh, Girl Scouts 1953 guidebook. Um, and this guidebook ultimately becomes very controversial. Um, but they have an entire section devoted to understanding the United Nations. And there are um, quotes from the United Nations Declaration. Um, there's all kinds of attention in the YWCA uh, bookshelf. This is the, the magazine for leaders of, um, of, of girls. Um, 
about the United Nations and the uh, work that it can potentially do in the world. So a great deal of support for those kinds of organizations. And you compare that to the Boy Scout manual, um, and there's a diagram of the United Nations structure, and that's about it in, in the boys' um, um, work. So there's this space, I argue, within girls' organizations to create a bigger dialogue um, about uh, peace and the, the, the avenues that youth can pursue um, in order to um, achieve, achieve peace. Fascinating. Um, you had mentioned um, earlier the idea that the field maybe has changed a little bit in the last decade or so. So I'm curious. Um, I'm curious what some of the what are some of the changes you've seen? How this book really fits into that panoramic view? Yeah, I think that the attention to youth organizations, especially, has really blossomed over the last decade. When I was writing my dissertation at Claremont Graduate University on the Campfire Girls, um, really in the 1990s, um, I finished in 2005, there was a sense where there was a worry from a lot of my mentors that what I was going to end up writing was an institutional history that no one was going to read and it was going to be very narrow and not really shed light on anything other than this one organization. Um, but I think increasingly with a lot of the really um, uh, terrific work that uh, examines the intersections of age, gender, race, um, class, um, and you know, really looks at the way that these youth organizations that were often mainstream voices of um, what expectations for youth um, with regard to their community and their nation should be, um, there's, there's, there's been a new look at youth organizations as a significant way to understand the history of, of children and youth. The other thing about it is that it's one of the places where there's actually sources. <laughs> mm -hmm. And sources are a perennial problem for the history of children and youth for obvious reasons. The younger you go, the fewer sources there are. Um, but over the last few years, um, particularly in the last three or four years, uh, Misha Honig's book has come out, as I said, on the, the, the Boy Scouts, um, Christine Alexander's book on guiding girls and the um, girl guides in the British Empire looks at issues of empire and girls' citizenship, um, both um, girls who were part of... Um, the, the empire itself and work girls who are being brought into the empire uh, through colonization um, and a number of other works have um, helped us really look at youth organizations in a nuanced way. Some of the early works that first looked at youth organizations tended to look at them as just extensions of the state, the state trying to create um, conforming children. And particularly for girls organizations, the, the argument was they produced a narrative that was exciting and then served up a heavy dose of domesticity. <laughs> and to an extent, that is true. Um, um, I wrote a chapter in um, the um, Global Girlhood book that Colleen Vasconcelos and I edited a few years ago called Homemaker Can Include the World. And the title actually does come from a magazine article in the Campfire Girl magazine. 
And the message was that you can be anything you want to be. Homemaker can include the world, but you have to start with this basic <laughs> idea that you are a homemaker first. And then everything else, your career, your experiments with science, all of that is a kind of add-on to, to the, the homemaker. Uh, but I think more recently, scholars are are probing the contradictions within youth organizations and more importantly they're they're looking at youth voices within these organizations so it's not just a top-down um, understanding of youth organizations and I've tried to do this in my own work as well to really uh, you know prioritize the voices of the youth themselves what did they think they were doing um, within the organizations uh, I actually was a campfire girl <laughs> when I was growing up and um, I, when I look back on my memories, very few of my memories have to do with what our leaders were telling us to do, but really about the friendships and the girls' cultures that we ourselves created. I don't know that our leaders always knew what we were actually doing. Um, and so I've tried to bring some of that to my, my own work as well. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, what are some of the challenges that you encountered while you were writing, researching and writing this book? I think the major challenge had to do with the, the sources. Youth um, sources that reflect girls' voices and not just the voices of adults who wanted to assist them are really hard to find. And I had imagined that I was going to find all of these pen pal letters. Um, we know that girls wrote them. Um, most of the women over age 60 who I talked to said, oh, I had a pen pal and such and such. But most of them did not save any uh, pen pal letters. And so I was lucky. And um, my mother-in-law actually had a good friend growing up and she grew up in Vienna. Um, this uh, friend of hers who also grew up in Vienna had an American pen pal. Um, and the um, girl in Vienna had saved all of the pen pal letters for six years. So it was a one-sided correspondence, but I was able to meet up with her and she was very generous in sharing all of her letters. Um, the American girl was um, a Jewish girl with quite a bit of um, wealth as a teen. And so she was writing about sports cars at her pool in the Hollywood Hills. Um, but they were also writing about Anne Frank and they were coming to terms with Hitler, and they were coming to terms with the fact that the Austrian girl's family was connected to um, uh, Nazi soldiers. Her father had to fight um, for the, the Nazi army, and, and what that meant um, to these girls in the 10 years following World War II is they, they, they tried to come to terms with uh, the world's past. <laughs> Not so much theirs, because they were so young. Um, and so, I mean, this is actually a really lovely story because I was able to reconnect them. Um, and so they've so actually, <laughs> um, they've actually reconnected in Europe, um, and, and met up a few times. <laughs> and so <laughs> we can think about some of the work that we, we do as historians actually has, you know, present day, um, um, relationship, um, implications as well. So that was, that was kind of fun. Um, and, and so I used their, their letters quite a bit. I was able to interview the American and she could fill in some of the details, but of course it's all from memory. 
Um, but as I said, most of the pen pals, if you if I was able to find them, they were one-sided. Like the Japanese girl, she's just introducing herself. So it was the beginning of a relationship. Campfire had actually recorded these um, introductory letters, but we don't have any of the follow-up ones, so we don't know um, if the Americans had heard of the cherry blossoms of Tokyo. Um, and other times, women were really guarded about their younger selves. Um, there's quite prominent LGBT um, activist, and her letters are actually archived. Um, but I couldn't get permission to print her letters because she's a very different person than she was as a child. And so she wrote um, with a degree of American superiority and um, a degree of racism that she's not comfortable with um, in a book where the transformation of herself wouldn't be centered. So she didn't want her letters excerpted sort of out of the context of her life, which I totally understand, but it makes it hard to tell the, the story uh, with, with all of the evidence. So I guess sources are the main thing. And then the sources that we do have are often collected by the youth organizations um, or by educators, and then they're produced for certain purposes. So they have this added layer of mediation uh, there were sample pen pal letters, for example, that school districts put together um, to tell teachers how to get their kids to write letters. Mm -hmm. So they're particularly they're they're picking particular models that um, show themes um, that the district or the organization wants to promote, um, and they're not they're not candid. Even the letters that are written by individuals. Um, are often written in the context of the youth organization group. Um, so we have to be very mindful of this added later of uh, mediation um, that, we're, that we're getting. So I think that was probably the, the, the biggest struggle. Um, the other thing to be aware of as historians is that a lot of the uh, youth organization materials are disappearing as well. Um, a lot of the campfire councils have closed over the last 15 years. Since I was doing my dissertation research, a number of the places that I went are no longer um, existing. So I would go to councils and I would go into the, you know, the, the shed and they would dust off boxes. And now we have no idea even where those, those boxes went because Campfire National can't keep them all either because mm -hmm. the, the space to store the archives is, is too expensive. Um, Girl Scouts, of course, has a wonderful um, archives in New York City, but they don't all have that um, that ability to maintain the sources. Yeah. Interesting. So. Oh, that's really interesting. And those personal stories and the connections with those personal stories also make the, the research um, even more fascinating. Um, so where do you see the future of this research? What do you think remains to be done? I think that... I think that we still need to um, uncover more of the girls' voices um, in, in the project. Um, and not just U.S. girls, but internationally. We, we don't have the, um, the knowledge, um, the sources available to um, completely understand um, youth organizations. Uh, I think there's other places as well um, in terms of intersectionality. I don't think that we're done exploring the ways that 
uh, girls from different um, identities um, thought about youth organizations, participating in youth organizations, or were affected by them, even if they didn't come into those youth organizations. Marcia Chatelaine's book, um, Southside Girls, um, looks quite a bit at Campfire Girls and African American Girls. Um, but hers is really only one of the only works to do that. And I know she's working on additional uh, projects on girls' organizations, particularly Girl Scouts and um, the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, in a lot of ways, girls' organizations were out ahead of the rest of the nation and even ahead of school districts and uh, educators in terms of civil rights and um, tolerance and, and progress. And that was part of the narrative of peacemaking, in fact, in the 1940s. And so you look into Campfire Girls and um, Girl Scouts magazines, they're some of the first to have um, images of girls across races and um, cultures. Um, but I think we, we still have very limited understanding of how girls from diverse backgrounds intersected with these organizations that were predominantly run by um, white, middle-class, Protestant women, um, many of them, interestingly, um, who were not homemakers themselves. <laughs> they were business women um, attached to these youth organizations. It was their, their life work. Um, the other thing that is curious to me is, I don't know if you've seen the films uh, or the, the little videos put out by the Nike Foundation, Novo Foundation, United Nations Foundation, The Girl Effect. No. They've had a series of these little videos. I've actually used them in the Introduction to Gender Studies class to get students thinking about the impact of girls. Hmm. Um, but these little videos show that, for example, when a girl has sex too young, um, all kinds of negative things start to spiral out of control. And so it's this very traditional vulnerability narrative. Um, the empowering part of these messages, the girl effect, is that if you educate one girl, what the exponential impact can be on this country. And I think there's a lot of similarity to this narrative to what they were saying about girls in the 40s and 50s. Right? If you can just get these girls in the 40s and 50s to be indirect ambassadors to the world, they'll make friends, we'll avoid atomic war, um, you know, everything <laughs> right. will be great and they'll grow up to be leaders and, um, and um, you know, the, the world will be saved. Um, and so today, it's this message that if the girls can be uh, safe from having sex too soon, they won't have the medical problems, they won't have the pregnancy, um, and they'll basically be able to build the economies of their, their countries. And so I think it's interesting um, and, and a little bit problematic, too, uh, because it, it, it puts girls as future fixers, right, without really interrogating the patriarchal structures and the market capitalism that creates the, the poverty, it in essence says, okay, these girls can pull themselves up by their, their bootstraps. And I do have to thank um, Karen Brown, who talked about this at the last Social Sciences History Association meeting, um, for getting me to think about this in, in this particular way. Um, so the other part of the research I think we need to continue to, to do and think about is, um, when we think about how girls are configured as citizens, um, 
I think it, it's it's harmful to think of them just as future fixers. It, 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 it lets boys off the hook <laughs> in some way. Boys don't have to interrogate patriarchal structures at all. Um, and oftentimes it sort of leaves the patriarchal structures in place. Mm-hmm. We just give them this Western style education mm-hmm. and everything's going to be good. We don't have to make any, any, any radical changes. And I, and I think that was there in the 40s and 50s too. Um, it's one of the limits, and I, I said at the beginning that um, I was interested in, in understanding girls' roles, and I was under, in understanding reconciliation and um, the atomic age um, in terms of its potentials as well as, as, well as its failures. Um, and the narrative of uh, you know girls acting as peacemakers left very traditional notions of gender in place, mm-hmm. didn't interrogate patriarchal structures, and also supported a narrative of American exceptionalism, Americans as the benevolent ones who are sharing their culture and their society abroad, um, writing to pen pals, sending gifts to refugees abroad, mm-hmm. um, that um, we need to continue to think about for our own um, efforts at um, internationalism and feminism today. Wonderful. I know I, I I really, I have to say that girlhood, this idea of girlhood really is a big part of the popular imaginary today, messaging to girls, um, what it means to be a girl. And I really think that you, you have a, a, a unique perspective, you give a unique perspective on the idea of American girlhood and really how it relates to um, the 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 broader international perspective as well. Um, so I want to thank you for for doing this. I, this is fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Tracy. <laughs> thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. S H C Y dot org.